You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. I think architects, like good chefs, should know where their food comes from. They should visit the farms where their food comes from. They should know about where their produce comes from, who produces their produce, how it's produced. The amount of child labour that is used in construction materials is horrific and not spoken about. The amount of plastics that we use in construction is awful and not spoken about. The amount of landfill from construction is really hardly even dealt with. Our guest for the final episode of 2023 is Andrew Waugh, founder and director of Shortage-Based Waugh Thistleton Architects, a practice he founded with Anthony Thistleton in 1997. Andrew is often described as a timber evangelist. He is indeed obsessed with timber and has been advocating timber construction, specifically mass timber, long before climate emergency made timber the material of the moment. He has lectured extensively in North America and across Europe on greater use of timber in buildings. Andrew has also recently withdrawn from the steering group of Architects Declare. We're going to talk more about that shortly. Andrew, you've been on so many podcasts. Usually I like to listen to all the previous interviews with a guest before we record. In your case, I had to give up. Yesterday, you kindly toured George and me through the black and white building, a new-build co-working office building you completed earlier this year in Shoreditch. It is all timber from the ground up, structure, core, floors, exterior cladding, and breeze soleil. Wall Thistleton has been known for building with cross-laminated timber ever since your Murray Grove project back in 2009. How would you describe the evolution of your use of CLT in the practice since then? Oh, goodness. So our first building was... Six years before that, our first CLT building was in 2003. So Murray Grove was about our third or fourth building in in CLT. The fascination with building from engineered timber started with really more about prefabrication, of having something which really thought about modernizing the way we build buildings was really central to our practice at the time. And then as we started to build with timber, we began to understand the advantages, not only of speed and lightweight and precision, but also of the carbon advantages. And, you know, in 2008, 2009, this was a subject which was becoming increasingly important. It seemed to me kind of bizarre at the time that if you were building a building near a bus stop, then you didn't need double glazing because you had to score a certain amount of points. And honestly, it still feels a little bit like that. Still feels like it's data driven. Have you met this target or that superlative? Is it Briam amazing? Is it lead gold dust or whatever? It's so it actually thinking outside of that kind of monitored kind of process, just thinking how can we look at our buildings in a more holistic way to meet this impending disaster? How we can we try and mitigate that in, in construction? and in architecture. Yeah, so Murray Grove was something that we'd thought about 
for a long time in terms of this kind of car crash between the need for urban housing in our society and in others, and then the carbon burden of construction. And so Murray Grove was a really fantastic opportunity to begin to kind of actually do that. But at the time, obviously, it was a lot simpler. So it was all done with pencil and paper and calculators. And uh, none of the sophisticated systems of IT that we have now, there was maybe at the time two or three producers of CLT. There's like 60 now. So actually, the kind of acceleration of this technology, especially outside the UK, has been incredible. Inside the UK, it's been more of a struggle. Two of your landmark projects, Murray Grove 2009 that you've mentioned, and Dalston Works 2017, have always slightly troubled me because although they both make extensive use of CLT, the timber is covered up. Mm. And at the black and white building, all the timber is exposed. So what's made that possible? What's made it possible at the black and white building is a couple of things. I mean, one is it's an office building, not a residential building. So the fire regulations are completely different and rightly so. The amount of research that has happened globally into fire safety and timber buildings gives us a lot more information to be able to, to, to deal with and to be able to design to. But I would say that the primary reason why we build in timber is as a viable alternative to concrete and steel, not the aesthetic. So yes, you're right, it's a shame that when you walk into Murray Grove, you can't enjoy the timber in the way in which you would be able to if that building were in pretty much any other country in the world. But <laughs> the building is designed primarily to reduce, massively reduce the carbon burden of construction. And it does that. And it does it really, really well. So to take that one step further, when we visited yesterday, you told us that in every project, you treat timber as a scarce resource and you try to use as little as possible. And that this is quite different from what's cur currently happening in North America. Can you explain, tell us a bit about this? Yeah, I mean, as a practice, we're really mindful of the fact that it's incredibly important that we consider the use of every material that we use, and that includes timber. So we don't count the sequestered carbon, the carbon included as part of the timber when we're doing our carbon calculations at first. So what we look to do is to reduce the use of every material in the building, reduce it right down. And certainly, Every building that we've ever built in the UK in timber had to be at least cost equivalent to a concrete or steel equivalent building. So we've always had to look at how we can reduce the cost. And one of the ways of doing that is to reduce the timber. So we have had this culture in the office of always thinking about how we could use the least amount of material as possible. So, we, so that really means that the buildings are kind of engineering led because you're thinking about the structural capacity of the material, how you can design the building to use the least amount of material. Both the economic side of that and the resource efficiency side of that have begun to truly inform an architecture, which is about using less. And this is not what's happening in North America? It's not what we've seen in, in it, really in North America or in Europe. I think that, it's funny, isn't it? It's kind of, I think in North America, the excitement the enthusiasm around using timber 
has been so wonderful and so immense that actually the idea of trying to use as little as possible is not currently within that kind of mindset because they're, I mean, actually, Hattie, in a way, you know, it kind of harks back to a question you asked me a minute ago, which is about being able to see timber in a building. In many ways, the more that you celebrate the aesthetic, the more of it that you have everywhere. Because in the UK, we don't have the legislation around embodied carbon that they have in Europe. We don't have the kind of the cultural enthusiasm and the financial enthusiasm that stems from ESG requirements in the US. So actually, we've always had to prove that our buildings were cost effective. So kind of, I think it's kind of being serendipitous in a way, you know, that through that kind of adversity, we've actually learned how to use a lot less of the material and how to use different types of engineered timber in different places to its greatest efficiency. One thing that really struck me visiting the building yesterday is uh, it gives the impression of a lot of glazing in the facade when you're inside that you then have to shade. But you explained that the glazing ratio is actually not so high and that the shaded glazing means the glass has no e-coating and can be much more easily recycled and reused. Can you explain this? What is the glazing ratio exactly? It's just over 50%. And from memory, it's 52, but don't quote me. <laughs> right. It's always one of those kind of conflicts, isn't it? When you're in an office building, you want that natural daylight to come into the building. You want to be able to be in a space which feels connected to the outside world. You want that for your own health and well-being. And if the building isn't satisfying that, then it's not succeeding as a, as a piece of architecture. But then on the other hand, you have the operational carbon issues. I mean, I do believe that actually, if you use quite a lot of glass and you think about passive means of shading that glass so that you don't get solar gain in the summer, I think that that's a very effective mechanism for reducing the kind of the operational carbon burden. I also think that in the future, operational carbon will get to a point where actually, you know what, we have pretty good building code. We have pretty good regulations here. And if you adhere to part L, the carbon burden of energy generation is going down, not up. If we are to get ourselves out of the situation we're in at the moment, we will be generating most of our power from renewable sources. And thereby, actually, it's important that we have buildings that we want to be in, because the embodied carbon of those buildings, rebuilding those buildings, repurposing those buildings, would be an even greater burden than actually the operational carbon that we're talking about. So it's always a balance between the two. What we've done at Black and White is using plugins to Revit. We've, we've assessed the, the uh, solar gain in the winter to maximize the winter solar gain and minimize the sun, solar gain in the summer months. So actually we, we reduced the heating and cooling burden by about 30% by using that shading. And by not having baked on metallic e-coatings to reflect the sunshine out of the building, we're able to A, like have, as you say, Hattie, to have a glass that can be recycled, reused. But we also have a building which lets in daylight where people can appreciate the kind of the time of day, the season of the year, what the weather's like. You know, the way, it's just not, it's a kind of more domestic atmosphere. I think, you know, we're talking about- You can also stuff. open the windows, which is quite amazing. Yes. Yes. I mean, my goodness, you've ever spent time in a building where you couldn't open a window? You know, it's like a panic attack in a hotel. I just don't think that kind of Tupperware architecture 
you know, those hermetically sealed boxes, I just don't think that that can ever be the future of humanity. I don't think that reaching some zenith of technology gets us to a position where we can't open a window, where we're having to duct fresh air up hundreds of meters across buildings in order to be able to breathe properly. It just doesn't seem right. So we also uh, discussed the whole issue of the basement and the cycle provision required by the planners. Um, could you give us a, your view about the basement, the uh, black and white building and basements generally? Basements generally, I mean, you know, basements are something that we need to phase out. That a basement can be five times more carbon intensive than a regular floor. The idea that we automatically assume that every new building is going to have a basement and then we kind of scratch our heads and search around for ways to reduce carbon elsewhere is the wrong approach. A lot of my career is is still building basements, but this is something that we need to change. We need to be moving away from basements. We need a planning regime that says no more basements. Like if the planners let us have another floor above ground and then we wouldn't need them. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, the fact that they won't allow Parliament to put solar panels on the Palace of Westminster. Because why? What? Because we might not have a future if we don't. We need to treat the situation that we're in as an emergency rather than as an additional burden or annoyance. Well, it was a rainy December Monday that we were visiting, so there weren't many cycles in that basement, but it did seem like a massive over-provision. Yeah, the, the, uh, the London plan makes really heavy demands for cycling storage. I think the pendulum may have swung too far one way and needs some correction. I think the GLA needs to go back and investigate all the basements that they've ever insisted on and count the bicycles and have a little reflection moment. One of the pressures towards sustainable construction now is the strings attached to finance. So pension funds insisting that what they're funding is... is scare quotes, net zero. So there's a corporate sustainability sector grown up that's accounting for scope one, two, three emissions. Even if you reduce the carbon in a new building, you're still going to need to buy some carbon offsets to get that to zero. But then it turns out these offsets are all a massive scam. You were talking before about a sort of admin heavy approach to sustainability. What do you think of this? Is it, is it the best we can do under neoliberalism or, or does it give a sort of misleading impression that we can continue building like office towers if we say that they're net zero? Um, I think the, net, the whole notion of net zero is problematic and I think probably had its day. I don't think we'll be saying net zero in a year's time, George. I really don't. I think kind of expressions like nearly zero or working towards zero are probably far more healthy and far more realistic. The idea that we can kind of build a concrete tower and then go home, be vegan and plant some trees is going to kind of atone for our sins. It's just not, it's not credible. Uh, When the trees burn down in a forest fire anyway, so. Well, you know, I mean, look at Canada last year, lost 5% of its forest growth through forest fires. Something needs to be done immediately. And the idea that we can kind of atone for it through some other action and carry on as usual, it's like, you know, you can keep smoking as long as you go to the gym. It's not true. But stop smoking. So in terms of building with timber, do you think there's a height limit as to what's appropriate? There's a lot of timber towers going up in the world at the moment. There are. I mean, that's a super interesting question. And it's one that we talk about in the office a lot. 
is building tool a good idea? That should be the first question. Really, is building tool part of a low carbon future? And I think that exceptionally, very exceptionally it might be, but generally, I don't think it is. If you look at buildings over sort of 15, 16 stories, you can't open a window anymore. You need additional lifts, additional structure, you need vented fresh air. They're buildings that create lots of wind, that have lots of shading issues. They're buildings that aren't great for the elderly, they're not great for the young. They don't build the kind of density that the myth says that they do. We all know that, that's been demonstrated. You look at cities like Berlin and Madrid, Barcelona, the 12, 15 storey cities, incredibly successful, incredibly successful for all people. We also know the operational carbon of tall buildings gets increasingly higher per person as they get taller. I also think that tall buildings are, they're a concrete typology. They're from concrete and steel. We didn't have tall buildings before we had concrete and steel. So actually, should we be making concrete buildings out of timber? I don't think so. You've done a lot of lecturing on mass timber over the years internationally. So how did that get started and who are your main audiences? Well, it's kind of tailing off now, I have to say. <laughs> but certainly after we finished Murray Grove in 2009, we had a, a lot of interest from the US uh, and from Europe because people could see that this was a low carbon technology, something of a solution. It was a fabulous opportunity for me because when you're talking about your work, I think you learn a lot about what you think. <laughs> you know, when you say it out loud, you know, several years that I spent really intensively talking and researching about timber when we didn't have much work in the UK, I think was an incredibly important part of my practice. And I think that it's really informed our work. It's really given us a sense of, a really strong sense of purpose within the practice. You mentioned sort of speaking across the industry. Were you also speaking to professional audiences and architecture schools? Oh or? yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Architecture schools throughout the US and in, and in Europe. And we've always made a point of making sure that, that we're communicating with, within our profession as well as outside. I mean, I have to say that the initial interest in our work has been more from environmental campaigners and from the forestry sector initially than it was from architecture. But that seems to be changing, which is great. I'm no longer the wood weirdo. <laughs> so we touched on this earlier, but do you have any observations from sort of being in touch with what's happening in North America and in Europe, what innovation do you see elsewhere that you would like to see happening here? I think just a lot more innovation in terms of legislation, a lot more of encouragement from government around accounting for embodied carbon, about driving low carbon legislation in construction. This summer, your practice released a guide, Timber Typologies that is available as a free download from Timber Development UK. It explains very well the difference between simple stud and plywood system used in low-rise construction and mass timber with lots of very clear diagrams drawn by your practice that explain the differences between glue lamb and CLT and LVL lam laminated veneer lumber. It also discusses how timber can be more widely used, as you've said, in lieu of concrete and steel. And 
In describing this guide, your colleague Andrew Ogle told the AJ that over 90% of concrete used in construction could easily be replaced by timber. That Alistair, seems so high. Alistair Ogle. Alistair, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that really the, the case? What Absolutely. about all the infrastructure projects and below grade no, no, I don't applications? Th I think that he's talking about construction of buildings. Buildings. Yeah, buildings. absolutely. He's talking about the construction of buildings, not of infrastructure. I mean, we will need concrete for infrastructure, but especially as we move, progressively move away from cars and road transport towards trains and that kind of thing. So that's why it's really important to think about the recycling of steel, to think about low carbon, low energy ways of, of, of recycling that steel, it's, you know, thinking about how we can decarbonize the concrete industry. But in construction, we need to be moving away from concrete and steel where possible, you know, or making sure that we're using the right material in the right place. Mm. I understand that you have two more guides underway. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, so we're, um, we're just finishing one off at the moment in the editing suite on policy. So that's looking at policy around the world that encourages the use of timber. So helping um, planning departments, helping legislators to see what's going on in the rest of the world so that we can bring that to the UK. And then That the is really useful. Do you know when it'll be out? It should be out in February. And then the third one is on the life cycle analysis of timber. So the LCA of timber is really important because at the moment, um, one of the issues that we have with accounting for carbon with timber buildings is that the assumption is, is that after a 60 year lifespan, the building will be demolished and the timber will go primarily to landfill and will then kind of create methane and the carbon dioxide will be released back into the atmosphere. So, we know that that's not the case with engineered timber because engineered timber is a valuable commodity and is, is pretty straightforward to reuse and also to recycle. We have a Horizon project with the EU at the moment that we're running with the Danish Technical Institute and Cambridge University, looking at actually how we can employ design techniques to allow for the, the kind of straightforward disassembly of timber buildings. Because once you start actually giving the timber an end of life, then the LCAs for timber just really like shine concrete and steel. And then you get a real understanding of the vast difference of using bio-based materials. You and Anthony have deliberately kept the practice small. I think mm. you're about 20. 30. People. 30. 30, yeah. okay. <laughs> but you also managed to undertake research. So how do you do that? You, you mentioned you have an Innovate grant at the moment, but do you set aside a certain amount each year for research or how does it work? We, we, we probably should do that. <laughs> Actually, um, so we have two Horizon projects for the EU and we have projects for Network Rail, for the Department for Education, for the National Science Foundation in the US. And we have pr previous projects for the US Department of Agriculture and others um, built by nature through the Loudest Foundation have been, have been really incredibly supportive in the last couple of years as well. The Horizon projects are done at a below cost, so we have to invest in those projects. The other projects are pretty much done at cost. So what we do is when people are working on research, we separate that out from the business and those projects are done at cost. 
and we invest back so into So aside SMG from these two guides that you have in the pipeline, what topics are you focused on in terms of research? So we've recently completed a piece of work with Built by Nature, and which was a study with NHBC to look at a pre-approved system for constructing CLT residential buildings in the UK. So we completed that end of October. So now the model building, the new model building, exactly. So that's mm-hmm. a that's a pre-warranty, pre-approved way of building residential in CLT, and that's being costed by Gardner Theobald. That's had full LCA done by Bureau Happold. So that's a really comprehensive piece of research that demonstrates it's possible in the UK within current building regulations to build CLT buildings, residential buildings to six stories. We're excited about that because that relationship with NHBC has been incredibly positive. What we find is actually when we start to collaborate with other bodies, with insurers, with QSs, with engineers, with warranty providers, what we find is the notion of a climate emergency is not just something that architects have. (laughs) This is industry-wide. This encompasses an entire ecosystem. And if we are to reduce the burden of construction and architecture, it will take a whole industry, takes a village, takes a whole industry to change, not just one section of it. You've done a lot of work in London for housing, including CLT housing, but one of the barriers towards using timber and other fire-safe combustible materials is the GLA funding rules, that they don't want anything combustible at pretty much any height in, in uh, housing schemes that they're funding. Do you think that with the assurance from all these other bodies that there might be a change of heart there? I think, watch this space, George. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, watch this space. I mean, we've had some really productive conversations with the GLA. The GLA are, are really aware of that contradiction, of the fact that they we have this really urgent housing need in London. In order to meet that need, we need to build, but we need to reduce the carbon burden of that construction. The GLA are well aware of that. And the GLA are also aware that by building in timber, you can reduce the carbon burden of housing by 75%, which is massive. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. They've been great. As I'm sure you can imagine, you know, post-Grenfell and the the awful events there, there's a, you know, there's also a lot of caution in the UK around combustible materials, which is completely understandable. And it is a different way of building. We are working with a, with a material that can burn. And so we need to be incredibly aware of that at all times. A, a couple of months ago, there was a fire on the roof of the flats on the top of the Bow Business Centre, which is near where I live. And I, I could see the plastic foam insulation melting and dripping Goodness. fire down onto yeah. the surfaces below. And after, after Grenfell, the reaction was to focus on the walls in resi- residential buildings, to even a ridiculous extent of banning things like laminated glass in balconies because there's oh, lots no, of plastic film in it. I know, yeah. Uh, but then there's other areas like roofs or, or other... Windows, which are, which windows are the big windows, one. Like at Lucknell House that was, that was listed as one of the reasons why yeah. the fire spread through the they're facade. The only, you know, George, they're the only thing that are exempted from the change in building regulations, are PVC windows. And yet it was PVC windows that melted and fell out at Grenfell that allowed the fire to spread up the exterior of the building in the first place. God, any, any opportunity to rid this country of UPVC would be... <laughs> It's the, would be something you know, it's, to be grasped it, that anyway. 
awful. Uh, it's awful. Because there's other there's other materials like like straw, cellulose insulation that can't be used as as well as mass timber. So there's this model building code that you've worked on. So how have you how have you addressed these these issues? The position of the study is it is is to meet current building regulations. It's not to challenge those regulations or challenge any policy at all. It's just, it describes what is possible within current legislation. So we've taken all of the timber out of the external wall. So there's an assumption that the external wall will be made in a non-combustible material. So it's the internal structure of the building. So all the party walls, the floor slabs, the core, the lift shafts, the staircases, they can be in timber, and most of that timber would be encapsulated with plasterboard. So you treat it like you would treat a steel frame building, and you cover that timber in plasterboard. In order that the timber will never ignite. So you and you've got sprinklers. Strategy. And we have sprinklers. If you take a six-story CLT building with 34 apartments in, and if there was no plasterboard in that to exactly the same one with plasterboard encapsulating all the internal walls, then the increase in carbon is 7%. So it would be good to reduce the amount of plasterboard we use through fire testing, through proper understanding of uh, combustibility, but at the moment, it's not a massive difference. So this whole issue of testing is really interesting because in your surveys of other countries and what's going on, do you find that there's been more standardized testing that's open source? Is that? Yes, significantly more, significantly more. And one of the issues that we have in post-Brexit UK is that there's a reticence to accept testing that doesn't have a union jack on it as though a fire test in France is not applicable to a fire test in the UK. Even though, actually, we've only got a couple of research establishments left in the UK that, can adequ- that are adequately provisioned to do for proper fire testing. So the vast majority of fire testing is done in Europe still, but it's done under the auspices of a union jack. It's just ridiculous. Every year we're supposed to actually move to a system of British standards and away from European technical approvals. And every year it somehow quietly gets delayed. At some point, we're just going to have to accept that we're part of Europe and we're part of a world, not some little isolated island. And then there's the transport implications of, of timber as well. There's this idea of food miles and the idea of transport as being a really big factor in, in emissions. In the materials in the black and white building, where do they come from and, and what percentage of the embodied carbon is, is represented by transport? The percentage of embodied carbon from transport is tiny. Uh-huh. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> it's really small. There are 893 individual timber components in the black and white building. The majority of them come from near Salzburg or near Frankfurt. And Salzburg and Frankfurt is not much further than Scotland. The roads are better, frankly, between here and Salzburg anyway. It would be great if we could produce CLT in Scotland. And certainly the biggest sawmills in the UK are owned by CLT manufacturer. Right, so they know it's coming. But at the moment, if you burn timber in the UK, if you use timber to, for biomass, it's subsidised. 
and it's not taxed. But if you build with timber, it's taxed twice. So we're in that crazy situation where you make more money burning a tree than you do building from it. I think architects like good chefs, right? Which they should be good chefs, architects, and they should know where their food comes from. They should visit the farms where their food comes from. They should know about where their produce comes from, who produces their produce, how it's produced. The amount of child labor that is used in construction materials is horrific and not spoken about. The amount of plastics that we use in construction is awful and not spoken about. The amount of landfill from construction is really hardly even dealt with. So timber is just the sharp edge, right? Timber's totemic. It demonstrates change. It demonstrates a new future, an aspirational, optimistic, better world. It's a great demonstrator of it, but it's by no means the end of the story. Okay, you've, you've talked about the um, mass timber that has come from Austria um, and Germany. Um, I'm particularly interested in the tulip wood solar shading yeah. because I was recently invited by AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council, to visit hardwood forests in western Pennsylvania. The tulip wood for the Brise Soleil on the black and white building have, has come from Pennsylvania, which has a tremendous supply of hardwoods, of cherry, of red oak, of this tulip wood. And much of it is currently shipped to China and Vietnam for manufacturing to paneling and furniture projects. Um, this is the opposite approach to anything local which is a topic we delved into a lot in episode 44, where we spoke to Jay Ahn of Studio Weave, who has sourced timber from London parks and street trees for which a, is, a recent yeah. library project. Which is wonderful. So, which is yeah. wonderful. But you know what? What we're engaged with is a mass project, a solution for urban housing at scale. What I want to do is transform the whole industry. What we've always maintained and always in always really endeavor to do at WT is to be mainstream, <laughs> is to be inside the tent, is to be working with all of the biggest developers, all of the biggest house builders in order to change from within and to use air and, and to utilize an industry that is scalable, that can build at scale, that can make a solution. These aren't small scale peripheral solutions that we are engaged in, they are opportunities to transform the way that we build. So how did you source this timber for the... Uh, so, when we want, so I wanted to put solar shading on the outside of the building so that we could have clear glass. We wanted a timber that could last. We'd been in conversation with AHEC for some time about different types of timber that are available in the US. And the thing about the tulip wood is, I mean, my goodness, you know, it's such a beautiful timber. So the idea that we could actually work with the US Forest Service, work with, with the American Hardwood Export Council to thermally modify this timber, to impregnate it with a fire retardant, meant that actually we could have an external cladding to the building that was a bio-based material that would have a long life, 60-year lifespan at least, and would be kind of beautiful and contextual with the kind of, with the rich browns and the greys and the color of the material that work with the context of the building. And honestly, when we've spoken to, to UK sawmills before, it's a little bit like, you know, sucking teeth and kind of, oh, I don't know about that. You speak to the Americans, they're like, wow, what a great idea. Yeah, let's do that. You know, so <laughs> it's a no brainer, really. And we're talking about a shipping container of timber. 
for the entire external facade of the building. So what's involved in thermal modification? Is that a way forward for more timber products? Certainly for the exterior of buildings, it's a really great process. So the, the material is steamed in a kiln, which is kind of similar to how the Vikings used to make their boats last longer by boiling them in sugar beaches, right? And this is a similar kind of process that makes the timber a lot more stable. It's a lot lighter as well when you pick it up. And because it's, it's devoid of sugars, it doesn't degrade. You probably get loads of emails from salt from like foresters and sawmills going, that's not how it works. <laughs> but it's kind of roughly how it works. A note to our listeners. While editing this podcast, I looked into how thermally modified timber, often called TMT, is made. The timber is first dried in a kiln, then it is intensively baked. The introduction of steam prevents the wood from burning. This process eliminates hemicelluloses and starches in the wood, making it more durable and dimensionally stable. It involves no chemicals, but it is energy intensive. What's the state of play with developing more UK timber products from Scotland and Wales? Are you up to speed on that? Yeah, so we talk to them a lot. We engage with the sawmills in the UK. We work with UK timber manufacturers and UK subcontractors. So we're constantly in conversation with them. We need to build that industry back up to take full advantage of the natural resource that we have in our own country. So my next question was actually a follow-on to the fire discussion that we, that we had a bit earlier. I heard you say recently that until five years ago, you'd never met an insurer because the client always dealt directly with their insurers. And how has that changed now? So I think post-Grenfell, there was definitely a kind of a wake-up call to the entire industry, right? But I think specifically to insurers, there was a concern with the increasing amount of timber build buildings being built in the UK. Here was an industry who, as I said, were being building in a certain way for, for 100 years, were now building with a new material, and that material was combustible, and the insurance industry was kind of going, well, hang on a sec, <laughs> do you guys know what you're doing? <laughs> do you know, do you, can you talk to us a bit about this? And I think the first reaction of the industry was, no, don't worry about it, it's fine. They're doing it in America, they're doing it in Europe, it's all good. And the insurance industry were just like, whoa, hang on a sec, tell us more. So as, as you say, Hattie, a few years ago, we started to increasingly engage with the insurance industry. And it's been a really, really rewarding process. So actually sitting down with insurers, talking to them about the longevity of buildings, talking to them about the value proposition of kind of being able to repair timber buildings. Because if there is a fire in a timber building, then you can see very visibly where that fire has been. You can repair that small corner of a building very easily. When there's been a fire in a concrete building, you're not really sure exactly what's happened to the concrete, how much of it's shaled, how much of the rebar is expanded. Similarly, in a steel building, you don't know how the structure of the steel has been undermined by the fire. So having all those conversations with them and engaging with the insurance industry really early on, stage two of the RIBA work stage, engaging with insurers, talking to them about your ambition, demonstrating how you're thinking about site safety, how you're thinking about building safety. What has been a really interesting outcome of that is it's changed the way that we draw. <laughs> because what we quickly realized is that actually architects do these incredibly intense plans, GAs, and they show them to people, 
But actually, without quite a lot of education and initiation, those drawings aren't terribly legible and they don't really communicate very well. So what we do now is we tend to draw very simply colour-coded materials drawings which talk really explicitly about the message that they're trying to convey. So do you do things more in three, like three little 3D sketches of things, a bit more We do than... little GIFs. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, we do little GIFs. We did a kind of a series of GIFs for, a, for the NHBC on the new model building, which just showed how the building went together. Because, honestly, one of the first details that we did, we showed it to a contractor, and they're like, they said, yeah, well, it's good, but you couldn't build it. Because you can't get your hand in there. You can't get your hand up and round. And when you put that in, how are you going to get that in afterwards? And we were looking at it and realising that actually the only way to make this a successful detail, a successful method of construction, is to make it really simple and straightforward to build. But one, one thing that, that's really enjoyable about the, the black and white building is, is, is this legibility of that you can see how it's put together, where there's, there's panels joined. Oh, there's little bits it. of dowels that yeah. have been cut out to cover the screws. And you can just... Yeah, you can just see how it's how it physically it, it is made, and with there's the... an honesty to it, right? There's a kind of clarity and an honesty to it, which I really enjoy. Which is a big change, and which is mm. really refreshing. It's exciting. Yeah, architecture has been smoke and mirrors for so long. You know, buildings that are kind of like made to look like they're made of concrete, and actually it's just big panels of concrete hanging in the air. You know. <laughs> Buildings that are made to look like they're steel, but actually it's just folded aluminium. So just last month, Wa Thistleton was awarded Practice of the Year at the AJ Architecture I Awards. I know, it's so, 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 so exciting. Would you say your time has come? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know about that, but it was, it was just fantastic to get that kind of validation. You know, it was brilliant. And it really so appreciated. You know, we stopped the whole office. The next day we just had a party and um, ate lots of cake. Although I've spent so much of this talk kind of stressing how we want to be mainstream, but we've been pretty peripheral for a long time. <laughs> you know, the wood weirdos. And actually it feels like this conversation is becoming more pertinent. It feels like some of the architecture that we've had to suffer for the last 20 years is becoming increasingly obviously redundant and irrelevant and that actually we need to be thinking about our planet and our cities not architecture as object but architecture as contributor the problem that we have in the uk is that increasingly architecture has become an individual exploit about pop stars and idea explosions and not about building coherent cohesive cities Yesterday, you mentioned to us that you have stepped down from the steering group of Architects Declare. Can you tell us why? With a heavy heart. It was such a fabulous idea to bring everybody together and to, and to talk about this issue that, that really should draw all our focus. And certainly, our practice fundamentally changed through the engagement with Architects Declare. And I felt that perhaps running out of steam a little, perhaps I'd been there long enough and ranted for long enough about it. I think that it's very difficult to have a cause like that which you, where you maintain the momentum. But I think it's Im imperative that people who are involved in that process continue to evolve and continue to evolve as practices. And one of the things 
that's arisen from that for us as a practice is we turned down a lot of work and we didn't take on certain projects and we have been very clear and very public about what we believe and what we think is important in architecture. I wish Architects Declare and ACAN, who I think is a wonderful organisation, every success to keep that influence, keep that conversation going. But I think it needs to inform real change in everybody that's involved in it. I mean, the only thing I'd like to say is that we're not by any means perfect as a practice. And I'm sure that there are things that we were championing two or three years ago, which we wouldn't touch with a barge pole now. For all of us, for the entire industry, this is one of kind of needs to be a process of constant curiosity, constant learning, be a process where we're looking forward to always. Perhaps some of the things that we're doing now, we wouldn't count on us doing in five years time, but we're learning. Great, Fantastic. thank you. Thank you very, very much. This is the last episode of Climate Champions for this year. We will be taking a short break in the new year and are planning to resume in March. Happy holidays all. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.